From breaking news to local stories happening where you live, this is the Jill Bennett Show podcast. We are starting, though, talking a bit more about red tape, specifically red tape when it comes to setting up a restaurant or more specifically a bar, trying to get a liquor primary license in Vancouver. Emotionally, it was uh, it was more of a roller coaster than I would have ever imagined. Um, the, the highs have been there, but the, the lows have been, been pretty dark at times. Um, it, it's challenging going into uh, City Hall in, a, in a, a pretty intimidating room with a past um, a past council run by by uh, by Kennedy that that denied all these for decades. So going into that room with a chance of everything, my investment, my life, like everything I put put into this place is 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 in limbo based on a five minute presentation decided by people I don't know on the spot. So the culmination of eighteen months came down to one decision in a split moment after hearing both sides. So. So yes, it was absolutely terrifying, more scary process than I've ever imagined, um, but a, a pretty big, pretty big high when I when I came out up on the on the upside. That was Cameron Bogue, the owner of Mount Pleasant Vintage and Provisions, which is now a bar. But as you heard, as you heard there, it took him about forty thousand dollars and eighteen months to get that license. Now there is an announcement being made later today. Ken Sim, the mayor of Vancouver, as well as some city councillors, will be announcing an update when it comes to regulations of that kind in the city of Vancouver. But here to talk more about not only that, but some of the other obstacles bars and restaurants are facing is Jeff Gwyn. He is the executive director of Able BC, that is BC's Alliance of Beverage Licensees. Jeff, thank you so much for being with us this afternoon. Oh, it's my pleasure. We know there's an announcement coming a bit later this afternoon, so we'll uh, stay tuned for what is being announced. But yeah. this is uh, in response to uh, what I can only imagine is a story that happens all too often or, or much too often. And this was a Vancouver a bar owner talking about all of the red tape and the fact that he had to shell out about $40,000 and wait many, many months just to get to the liquor license for his establishment. So what are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, Vancouver has some problems when it comes to how they deal with hospitality businesses and, and liquor licensing, and and they are unique to Vancouver. Uh, I'm I'm excited about the announcement today. I think it's going to be good news for the hospitality industry from the mayor, and I think the new mayor and council are doing their best. But here's some of the frustrations from our industry. The provincial government is the one that regulates and issues liquor licenses. There's already a whole system in place. Uh, and if you want to open a, a restaurant that serves alcohol or a pub or a bar, you get your license from the province. The municipality here in Vancouver has a whole other process on it where they have six different classes of license and they have distance criteria between things and a whole bunch of stuff that nobody else really does. Um, and a lot of those things just end up slowing the process down. For me, it's not even about the cost of some of these applications, which is exorbitant here in the city, but the fact that it takes 18 months to get a license that the province can issue you in a few weeks or months just doesn't make any sense at all. And I'm glad you kind of explained that because that was my confusion on this as well in that I thought it was as far as the liquor licensing that that was under provincial jurisdiction and obviously there's going to be a lot of red tape there as well. But is the slowdown then in, from what you're seeing and what, from what bar owners and restaurant owners are seeing that the slowdown is at the civic level? Yeah, absolutely. So in the city of Vancouver, it, um, quite frankly, over-regulates and the bureaucratic process is far too slow. I mean, they have strange rules that even though you get approved from a license from the province, and the province is looking at whether you have a criminal background or 
uh, you know, what kind of operator are they looking at, whether you're, you're um, adhering to provincial regulations about liquor licensing and dealing with public safety. So all that's taken care of. Then you get to the city of Vancouver and they've got this, for example, a class system where if you're a, uh, a bar that's one to 65 seats, you're class one and another one is, you know, different up to 150 to 300, but they have distance between those bars sometimes that the province doesn't know about and there's no real logic to it. Not putting a nightclub beside a, a residential building makes sense. No one's going to do that. But why can't you have two little cocktail bars beside each other in downtown Vancouver? Technically, that's offside. So you end up with business owners that are just frustrated going through this process, following rules that don't understand, and then having no input on why it takes so long. Another real frustration for us is too many of these decisions end up going to city council. Now, it's totally appropriate that the city has a role to play in approving these licenses, but if you're just applying for a normal business with serving liquor, should you have to go to a full council meeting and spend you know, time in front of all of council for it? Other jurisdictions either skip that process or here in the city of Vancouver, we could do something like having a chief license inspector who can, council can delegate that authority so an individual can make those decisions looking at the evidence as opposed to having to involve all the time and expense of going to council. So. It's just too much red tape, um, and it, particularly at a time when our industry is struggling to recover from the pandemic, it's just it's cost too much money and it takes too long. And it's just the sad part about this when you read the article where this, um, you know, we're talking about and people are saying they don't want to open a business in Vancouver, and that is not the message that we want to be sending to people. One of the issues in this particular case as well seemed to be, and I, I remember noticing this as well, if you went into a place, you couldn't be standing because uh, who knows what horrible things would happen if you were standing <laughs> with a beverage rather than sitting with it. But he was trying to get yeah. that license to have that kind of neighborhood pub feel. So yes, people would be sitting and eating, but maybe there might be some people standing around a certain area yeah. and having a drink or two as well. So is there is that still in place as far as you have to get that specific, that different license if you want people to be standing? Yeah, so the, the, the province does issue liquor licenses based on kind of seated capacity. Um, but you know, part of the problem here is if anybody who's listening has traveled to other countries around the world know that it's a pretty normal experience to go into a pub uh, and grab a pint from the bar and stand at, you know, maybe a table you can lean on and chat with people. That's a, there's no public safety risk. There's no additional health risks from that. It doesn't really make sense. And he wanted to provide that sort of experience in this place, so it ended up being more social. I mean, it's a, it's a hospitality business, right? That is a very normal and fun thing to do. But the city of Vancouver and the province does have some strange ways of calculating occupancy that require the seats. So he ended up getting caught up in a whole process around that. At the end of the day, um, that's one of the differences between what we call a liquor primary license and a food primary, where it's just the difference being you know, a restaurant that's focusing on food that happens to serve liquor versus a, a pub that is serving liquor. And places that are liquor focused, uh, typically you don't need, to, you can have people standing. They're going to do it anyway. It's a normal thing to do. So that was one of the frustrations for him for sure. And at the end of the day, you know, what's the, the saddest part for me is instead of talking about how this neighborhood is going to have a vibrant new hospitality experience and businesses reopening after the pandemic, we're talking about how much money it cost and how long it took just to get city council to say yes to something they were always going to say yes to, which is deeply frustrating. It reminds me as well, and I'm not, I think it's the provincial jurisdiction or the provincial rules. There's, a, oh, I'm sure there's more than one place, but I remember being at a small little brew pub in Vancouver, a craft brew pub, and they have seating. They've got a patio out front. 
but you're not allowed to take your own beer out to the patio because you cross over six feet of sidewalk. And because you cross the sidewalk, <laughs> yeah. you can't. So they have, and they're smoking busy, run off their feet, but you still have to wait while an employee takes it across the sidewalk and puts it on the table for you or could hand it yeah. back to you once you're over the sidewalk. I mean, it seems kind of, I get it. If you fell, I guess, and hurt yourself on the sidewalk, yeah. you could sue. But certainly there's some way to get around that. Yeah, and these are like little things that actually make a massive difference because think of the additional expense and difficulty that business owner now has to go to have a staff member always watching to make sure no one, you know, has the audacity to walk their pint inside or outside right through this across the sidewalk. Um, and, you know, they have to, you know, continuously manage this. And customers don't necessarily understand. They might see a friend, uh, you know, six feet away and decide they're going to go join them. Uh, but then they accidentally violated liquor laws. So this is something the city can absolutely change. Um, you know, and that they, we can do some work with them. And I, and I do feel, honestly, that this, this mayor and council gets it. Um, and we, we've come through, you know, the pandemic and come to the other side. And there's, it's been tough, but there's some logical changes we can make in business licensing and these sorts of processes that will really streamline it. And I think one of the, the things we're really hoping to see is just instead of investing all of these, you know, these like clean up the regulations instead of having all of this, this red tape, and then additionally just streamline the process to saying yes. We don't need full council votes on, you know, something like a liquor license after public people have already had their opportunity to submit feedback. I think a chief licensing inspector who can have this authority would be much cleaner. It's done in other jurisdictions and it saves businesses time and money, uh, which they just don't have right now. So a chief license inspector then would be something, a welcome announcement from the city at this point. Is there anything else that could be another short-term solution or something else that you would like to see as far as dealing with that red tape and regulation? Yeah, I mean, first of all, there's all these weird distance criteria for the city. If you have a, you know, X number of sizes, you can't be 500 meters from someone, 350 meters. All of that is, is antiquated and was dealing with a problem that doesn't exist anymore. So if we want to get rid of that. Uh, there's moratoriums on the amount of, you know, uh, they're called drinking seats, the amount of seats um, and, and bars and restaurants can have in particular areas in the city. That puts just handcuffs on the industry uh, for no particular reason. It doesn't matter if there's an extra 50 places to, for people to put their butts in an area. What matters is that you've got businesses um, that can cluster together uh, and try and trade traffic with each other. It's it's just a good economic policy. Um, finding faster paths to say yes when we're trying to build patios or say we want to have people you know, be able to stand and dance in areas, just find ways to you know, reduce the burden where people have to just send in more paperwork and take longer and longer and longer. There, there's no universe in which it would take, it should take 18 months to approve a simple liquor license application. That's just not logical. There also seems to be a bit of an obsession that places have to offer uh, types of warm and cold food because, again, what awful, awful things might happen if you just go and have a pint or a flight of beer and yeah. you don't eat a pretzel at the same time. Yeah, so this is a provincial regulation that we're working on. So, the, I, you know, I absolutely understand the logic of uh, associating alcohol and Food and it's a, it's a way the province is trying to help uh, folks manage their uh, intoxication or consumption to make sure you're, you're, you're eating while you're drinking. And that's overall makes sense, but there's a whole bunch of businesses that, that doesn't make sense. And I mean, technically, the rules say you have to have a kitchen open offering a good selection of food right through the entire liquor service. No one is ordering food at one o'clock in the morning. Every kitchen closes a bit early, even if you're staying open until two. And, you know, every single nightclub across the entire province in the city of Vancouver that I'm aware of, they don't have kitchens in them. But technically, they're supposed to in a number of cases. So the, the rules aren't even being followed in some cases because they just aren't logical. So 
we're working with the provincial government on those. Um, that doesn't have an impact here in the city of Vancouver. They just don't have authority to, to in, in that area. Um, but it doesn't make sense why the province issues a liquor primary license covering a broad category of licensees, and the city of Vancouver needlessly divides that into six different categories of licenses with different criteria and distance criteria between them. I mean, it's massively confusing for a licensee as well why they'd have this additional sort of regulations where if you were to go across the municipal boundary to one of our neighbor cities, half is, you know, half is expensive, takes a quarter of the time, and doesn't have any of these needless you know, distinctions. So it's uh, it's something that we need the mayor and council to address or else Vancouver is going to start losing some of its necessary hospitality businesses and central vibrancy in the city. Well, we are waiting to see what uh, that announcement is this afternoon. Jeff, as always, thanks so much for coming on the show. My pleasure. Have a great day. Earlier today, the province updated the rules around single-use plastics and unveiled a new provincial regulation. This will expand the efforts that have already been taking place to tackle those hard-to-recycle single-use plastic items. It is called the Single-Use and Plastic Waste Prevention Regulation, covering things like shopping bags, disposable food accessories, and other plastics. Joining us to talk a bit more about this is George Heyman, the Minister of Environment and Climate Change strategy. Thank you so much for making the time today. My pleasure. Good afternoon, Jill. Good afternoon. So what does this do as far as what rules were already in place and how does this change them? Well, first of all, we've had 21 municipalities in British Columbia that have uh, implemented bans on certain single-use items. And we we changed uh, the law in BC to give them the power to do that. But those municipalities, as well as many others, really called on us to have a uniform provincial standard. And uh, we know that uh, British Columbians really are concerned about the, the amount of plastic waste in our environment for a whole range of reasons. What it does to the ocean, what it does to ocean birds and, and uh, marine mammals and other species. We did uh, some polling back in uh, 2019, 2020, uh, that had a very high rate of response, over 37,000 people, uh, and about uh, close to 90% of them said they supported a ban. So we have the most uh, complete and ambitious extended producer responsibility or recycling system in North America. We cover more products than any other jurisdiction in North America, but there are still lots of things that aren't covered, and some of them are very hard to recycle. They're single-use plastics. There's a a range of things that we commonly find in shops and restaurants and stores, and we know the federal government is bringing in a regulation uh, at the end of December, so we timed our regulation to meet theirs. We will do what they're doing, and we're going a little bit further in a a couple of areas, although we're phasing it in over time. And what this will do will reduce the amount of plastic waste in our environment, but at the same time, encourage the use uh, of reusable, uh, reusable, not plastic bags, cloth bags, for instance, uh, reusable um, cups, uh, different forms of of, um, utensils that may be found in restaurants, and, and kind of stop the practice, for instance, of We've all been to a takeout place and we get a little uh, stretchy plastic bag that can't be recycled, filled with some plastic cutlery that we may or may not want. And that's an example of something uh, that we are banning, the the bundling of things. But if somebody requests the utensil because they need it for 
health or disability reasons or they just don't have anything, they'll still be able to request it. But our goal is to phase out uh, these things, some of them banned outright, some of them by request only, uh, while at the same time we support um, companies like Sharewares, which we visited and made the announcement at today, that is producing uh material, plastic material that uh, can be reused many times. They've set up a bin collection system. You you get the uh, the cup, for instance, from uh, a coffee shop uh, or some other shop. You use it, you return it to a readily accessible bin, and you get your deposit back. So we're filling that gap with things that can be reused. When you talk about that there are a couple of areas where this legislation or this this regulation goes further than than what's what's being done on a federal level where what areas are, are is that well one of the one of the areas we're looking to cover are are foam meat trays uh, but we know it's hard because that while there are some fiber based alternatives being produced by the same company that's producing the styrofoam in BC um, they're still looking and others are looking for a completely suitable and healthy material for raw meat, raw fish, uh, raw chicken. So we've, we will uh, ban those, and we've met with the company, and they think uh, that given seven years, or perhaps a bit shorter, uh, based on, uh, on market demand, they'll be uh, in a position to be completely providing other alternatives, but they're not yet. So we initially were thinking of a three-year phase-in period for that, and we've extended it to 2030. To 2030. So what will that look like then? If you're talking about the foam meat tray, those are generally then also wrapped in plastic. Will that also change? Um, no, that won't change uh, in the short term. We're looking for uh, new materials, obviously, over time. But uh, in many cases, uh, stretchy plastic packaging for a variety of things will be uh, will be uh, regulated. These things are uh, difficult. They create a lot of waste. Uh, they're difficult to recycle, and they are fouling our environment. And we know there are alternatives. Uh, so the, that stretchy plastic then won't be phased out immediately, but that is something that's on the list that looking for replacements. I think we will be uh, we'll be looking at uh, at much of the food service packaging uh, where we can uh, where we can ban it immediately. We will be. Um, we are also looking, of course, at uh, the availability of suitable alternatives as part of what affects the uh, the timing of, of these actions. Uh, it says in the release as well that so in December of 2022, manufacturing and importing of six plastic items became prohibited. Uh, plastic checkout bags, drinking straws, cutlery, stir sticks, ring carriers and food service ware made from plastics. Sales of these items will be banned as of December 20, 2023. And then it also talks about that the importing of a lot of these uh, uh, items will also be banned. So so does that mean somebody couldn't go on to, say, an online shopping site or go on, say, to Amazon and, and order any of these uh, items? I think we have to work out the details of, uh, of how this uh, applies to uh, international uh, shipping and ordering. But uh, clearly, uh, we are going to work with the, uh, the people who supply these items and wrap these items and make them aware of the, uh, in this case, we're talking about a federal regulation, not just a provincial one. And we'll be, will be and have been working with the federal government to ensure that we have the mechanisms to 
uh, ensure that the intent of our regulatory bans actually takes effect and uh, and is in place in Canada. And it also says then that sales of these items will be banned as of December 20th of this year. So so does that mean too, because I think now, depending on what store you might go into, you, you can go into a dollar store or a different store and buy plastic straws, for example, or you can buy plastic bags. So will that stop? I think it's, imp- yes, it will. I think it's important to understand that uh, we have been working with um, the retail associations with industry in British Columbia for the last uh, uh, number of years uh, developing this regulation. We put out a discussion paper. We uh, incorporated the feedback. We worked with people on what was achievable timeframes and included in that was uh, an importance of a phase in period, or in this case, a phase out period. So people could use up existing inventory. It would simply uh, be unfair to uh, stick people with a bunch of product that they paid for and they can't uh, manage. So that's why uh, both the federal government and, and British Columbia are choosing December for the effective date. And you talked a bit as well about uh, um, reusable cups and that type of thing. And certainly that's been a big issue. Maybe not so much plastics, but to even talking about the cup fee, which was in place in Vancouver for a while. Uh, what really came out from that, though, were, were is restaurants who are really trying to have those reusable cups or the, the cup exchange. There is a reluctance by the public when it comes to plastic reusable cups with this idea, whether it's it's right or not, with this idea that they never never are completely clean or they're not as clean as say a ceramic or a different kind of, of product, a different type of material. How do you get past that? Do you think, or get people buying into those reusable type systems? Well, I think more and more uh, for several years now, we've seen people showing up with their own stainless steel or in some cases, plastic reusable coffee cups, insulated water containers and other things. Uh, I can't go to a community center or a library now where I don't uh, I don't see not just a water fountain, but an ability to fill a water bottle. So more and more people are, are getting on this train. But one of the things that uh, we saw today at the announcement was just how Sharewares processes uh, these materials they have. They've put in place a easy to return system that people can sign up for. And one of the places that's uh, in use right now is the Bard on the Beach Festival, where uh, I used to see a lot of people, including myself, uh, with great concern about we, we want a drink, but we uh, were getting it in a throwaway plastic uh, glass. So now they're moving to this uh, returnable system. But the other thing that uh, Sharewares has is a very sterile uh, cleaning wash facility. And that's what uh, the people who produce these things are doing. So I think people can will get used to it over time and they can be assured that uh, the same hygiene standards that, that apply to a restaurant are going to apply to um, material that is supplied to the restaurant and then picked up from the restaurant or somewhere else. And just, Minister, to go back on something that you mentioned as well, and that idea of plastics, and especially plastics ending up in the oceans and in water. And you're right, obviously, people don't want to see that and want to see that reduced if possible. Do you think, though, it's great that BC is a leader and continues to lead in this area, but it's it's not as though all BC plastic goes into the ocean. In fact, I, w- I would think most of it doesn't because we are a leader in this field. Do we not also need other jurisdictions, other places to buy into similar type programs to actually make a difference? 
We do. And one of the ways that happens is by federal uh, regulation, for example, and not all jurisdictions are are uh, in Canada. So one of the things that we in BC and we as Canadians can do is implement these new models and show that they work and that once people get used to them, they're virtually as easy as the system we have now and there are alternatives. There are entrepreneurs like sharewares and others who are looking to uh, fill the gap um, where there's a desire for new reusable uh, or easily recyclable products. So that we're trying to ensure that people have alternatives. And I think the entrepreneurs in BC and elsewhere will more and more supply those alternatives. We uh, had uh, throughout the pandemic and still a program called the Clean Coast Clean Waters Initiative that created 1,700 jobs. And over four years, we've collected 1,500 tons of marine debris on 4,600 kilometers of BC coastline. It doesn't all end up in the ocean, but a lot of it does. And some of it ends up in landfills uh, and is uh, problematic for municipalities running out of space as well as for um, the the release of greenhouse gases. So uh, it is important to do this. It's important to show it works and it's pragmatic. And that's why we've taken the time to try to get it right. And that's why we have phase-in periods. And that's why we've worked with um, consumer associations as well as retail associations and local governments to design a system that will provide some uniformity across BC and in many cases across Canada and have a system that works and changes how we live. Minister Heyman, thanks so much for your time today. You're very welcome. Thanks. Well, we have been talking a lot about stranger attacks. We've been talking more recently about the latest attack involving a tourist. This was a stabbing that took place on a downtown Vancouver corner. Luckily, the tourist is okay. But how do we make sure the downtown is safe? Well, this is a bit of a different project, looking at different types of dangers. But the city of Vancouver has announced that the Last Call Pilot Project, in partnership with Goodnight Out, so it's been a couple of months since the launch of the, the Last Call Pilot Project. The city has now announced that it is expanding. So joining us to talk more about that is Stacey Forrester, coordinator with Good Night Out. Stacey, great to have you back on the show. Thanks for having me again. Well, before we get into the expansion and what this actually looks like, can you remind us again what exactly Good Night Out does? Yeah, Good Night Out is a Vancouver-based nonprofit, and our whole mandate is to address sexualized and gender-based violence, particularly in nightlife and hospitality. So the way a lot of folks know us is our Granville outreach team that works on the weekends, but we also offer training programs for bars, restaurants, cafes, and events. And how long have you been doing this? Since 2016, so we've been around for seven years here in Vancouver uh, doing this work. This is an expansion then, the city again uh, talking about the expansion of the Last Call Pilot Project, which is in partnership with Good Night Out. So how does that work? Yeah, so the Last Call Pilot launched about two months ago. And what it is, is really working with eight establishments in town across a variety of sizes and demographics to help build their capacity to prevent and respond to harassment in their space, whether it's harassment of workers or harassment that customers might experience. So we're doing that by training them, helping them with policy, and giving them access to a reporting 
platform called Not Me that allows workers and customers to report um, harassment or harassment-like behaviors that they experience in the space. So is that kind uh, of a... Oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say the, the pilot's going for a year. Um, at, and at the end of it, we really hope to recognize these um, eight establishments for their participation and their growth over the year. And you mentioned the Not Me, the app that's being used. So is that kind of a, a take on, on Me Too? Yeah, yeah. It, the name is, is a play on, on the Not Me movement, which really was an opportunity for where many survivors came forward and spoke up. So so this is an app that really does allow for reporting of harassment um, in a way that protects the whistleblowers. Um, fear of retaliation and fear of complaints being ignored is an all-too-common reality. And we found in doing research for this pilot that this platform was a confidential, um, privacy law-compliant tool that, that allowed people to report things they experienced. Is it meant to be reporting then in real time, or is this something that somebody can then go and maybe report something that happened a few days ago, or they, they maybe in conversation realize, hey, wait a minute, that, that, that wasn't really above board what happened. Can it be done after the fact? Yeah, it is, it is a platform that has a, a lot of different functionality. For the eight participating establishments, um, the, these establishments are set up to support people in real time, but also receive compliments. You know, you went out Saturday, something really uncomfortable happened or something uncomfortable happened on your shift on Friday. And by the time Monday comes around, you're saying, you know what, I think it is important to let this establishment or let my manager know about this. So, you know, people can, can file the report after, uh, the real time element is important to our participating establishments because it does allow folks to kind of get help in the moment, which is one of our favorite aspects of this app. So if they're in a really crowded, um, uh, one of the participating establishments that's really crowded, it's really busy, um, they can use it to get help on the spot as well as afterwards. And you mentioned it's confidential if people use this. Is it anonymous as well or no? It has an anonymous feature. So people can either share what they experienced with their name attached um, or whether it's their workplace or not or whether they're a customer. They can also choose to submit it uh, anonymously if that feels better. For the participating establishments, it also has the feature of being able to chat with someone representing the establishment if someone is unsure what to do. Hey, I don't know if this is worth reporting. What would the pros and cons be? I'm not really sure. And someone from that establishment on the other end can chat in real time with the person before they decide to submit. Hmm. And is it, you mentioned if somebody's uh, thinking back to something maybe that happened on shift. So is it, is it geared to both employees of the establishments as well as patrons? Or who do you think is kind of getting the best uh, with using this? I think that the, uh, the advantage of this app is that it is able to receive reports from both. So we know that many workplaces don't, despite it being a, a requirement from WorkSafe BC, uh, do not have strong reporting and investigation uh, tools. So we really do find that this brings this to workers. It kind of levels the playing field around the power dynamics at play that could prevent someone from reporting. But it is also very helpful for customers. Customers almost have even less tools to report unsafe things um, than, than workers do. And, and we feel super lucky to be working with Not Me because this app 
uh, affords this option to both equally. And you mentioned, so there's the option with the participating establishments, there's the chat live option. But if somebody uses the app then to report something, where does the information go? So the for the participating establishments, the reports go to uh, the designated report receiver within the establishment. So all of that confidential data about what happened and to whom and whom was involved, all of that goes to the establishment. Good Night Out does get high-level um, reports monthly, so we do not see the details of, of someone's experience of harassment, but we do see high-level, you know, how many reports are in the queue for an establishment, if they're being responded to, if they're being ignored, just to give us a bit of accountability for our participating establishment. So if I can log on and I can see that there's five reports being ignored, I get to advocate on behalf of whoever it is that provided them and say, hey, I don't know if you know this, but there are some reports sitting waiting to be acknowledged. And if there's something in there that suggests there might have been something more serious or, or something even criminal, then it is it up to the person, that designated person, to decide, oh, if, if more agencies need to be involved? Yeah, so so with sexual assault in Canada, it is on the, on the victim or the survivor to involve police. Um, we are obviously hoping that through the, through the policy work that we do with our participating establishments, they will have standard operating procedures in place uh, to navigate what to do if something criminal comes in. That policy end will really support the functionality of the app. All right. You mentioned as well uh, there are eight participating establishments. So are those all establishments that are in the downtown core or on the, the Granville Street, that strip? Yeah, so we did a call out and we actually received a good um, geographic uh, kind of spread of the establishment. So we do have a fair number that are downtown. We also have some in Gastown and one out in Kitsilano and one kind of in the Railtown area. So we do really love that we aren't just, I know downtown is facing a lot of challenges right now around safety, but we, we feel fortunate to kind of be able to work with uh, establishments across the city. And is it public information which establishments are involved or would somebody know if the establishment they're in is, is part of this project? Yeah, so we're in the final week of getting everyone um, trained. Once this last few establishments are trained, there will be lots of posters and materials in these establishments on the table. There'll be tent cards in the washrooms. There'll be posters. So that'll be very clear uh, if a place is participating. And Stacey, you mentioned that you've been doing this or your group has been involved in doing this for about seven years. And I know I talked to you a few times during the pandemic yeah. when things were, were shut down and it was very strange out there. How are you seeing things now that so we seem to kind of be back in full swing and it is summertime, which can be a very, very busy time of year. How, how are things going or what are what is your group seeing? Yeah, so initially when things opened up, uh, you know, when it was the full-on opening post-pandemic, we definitely saw, you know, a definite spike in things we were hearing about. Uh, I'd like to be able to say that's evened out, but the reality of sexual violence is that it's, you know, it's its own epidemic that unfortunately is nowhere close to being resolved. So we know that harassment of people does spike during warmer weather. People are outside, they're social, they're wearing clothing that makes them comfortable, which sometimes due to the prevalence of rape culture in our society means that people don't understand consent. So this is our busy time of year. 
which is why we have uh, really decided to expand the pilot. So I'm not sure if this was clear when we were talking about it. Um, the recent expansion of the pilot means that people can use the app to share their experience in any place. Hmm. The main difference is that they won't be able to get direct help, but we think that it will be an important tool to collect data about where harassment is happening and what type during this kind of, unfortunately, peak harassment season. And it's, it's an app where you can get it to, to any of the usual places where people do that? Yeah, free app, usual places, uh, both for, for Google phones and, and iPhones. Download it before you go out, before you go for patio beers or before you go out clubbing or before you go to a concert. Um, it takes less than three minutes to, to share a report. And um, part of this pilot means that Good Night Out is committed to following up um, and offering training and policy to any place that gets a report over the course of the pilot. Stacey Forrester, always good to talk with you. Thank you so much for coming back on the show. Of course. Thank you for having me. We are talking about spending and in particular the spending of our Governor General. One of the numbers released after a Freedom of Information request is that the Governor General expensed $71,000 just in limo fees during a four-day trip to Iceland in 2022. And joining me now to talk more about this is Brian Pasifum, the Parliament Bureau reporter with the National Post. Brian, thanks so much for coming back on the show. Hey, good afternoon. Uh, these numbers are startling, I suppose, to say the least. I know you've written about this in the National Post. Can you take us through uh, some of the other findings? Yeah, so just a bit of background. Last October, uh, Governor General Mary Simon and uh, her husband and entourage they went on a working visit to Iceland, uh, mainly to visit the Arctic Circle uh Arctic Circle Assembly, which is uh, sort of a confederation that uh, meets every so often. Uh, uh, the um, They went there for four days. It was a four-day trip. Um, and I managed to uh, get the copies of the receipts and expenses. Actually, uh, the Canadian Taxpayer Federation that was when he did it. And uh, yeah, and, and buried amongst all the regular expenses that you'd normally expect for, for a trip of this sort was uh, a really, really high number for transportation. It was... Uh, a total of sixty-four thousand dollars that was billed during the visit, and that's in addition to another six thousand dollars that was billed during the advance trip uh, back in August, the August, the previous August. So, yeah, all told, uh, seventy-two thousand uh, dollars for a trip. And if any of your listeners have ever been to Reykjavik, which is the the capital of Iceland, it's 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 an incredibly walkable city. It's very it's a, it's it's a small city. It's much smaller than most Canadian cities. And yeah, and uh, most of the events that uh, that she was attending was within probably that five to eight minute walk of uh, her hotel. And this was something called Ice Limo. I, I actually thought that was something that the Canadian Taxpayers Federation had come up with, but it's not. That's the actual limo that, and according to the description, the specializing in genuine luxury travel life experiences. But like you said, the, the conference hall was about 700 meters from the hotel where the Governor General, where Mary Simon and the 15 others on this trip, where they were staying. So it does seem a bit baffling, doesn't it, that in four days they were able to rack up more than $70,000 in limo trips. Yeah, yeah, like you said, Ice Limo is the, is the name of the the, the the company that provides the limousine. That's uh, one of one of several in in, in, the, in the country. But yeah, it's it was, it was kind of confusing. To, like if it was a, a trip that involved like you know large 
traveling by road, something like that. But, you know, you can travel around the perimeter of Iceland and not that long and, and pretty much everything. Like I think the farthest distance that the, the group went was to the Iceland's president's residence, which is maybe about a 20 minute drive away from, from the hotel. So yeah, it was, it was, it was, it was confusing as to how you would even run up, like ring up a bill like that. Uh, and that's exactly, and, and even the time, even if you spent the entire time riding around in a limo, it hardly feels like there was enough time to do that and still sleep mm-hmm. and attend the conference and do anything else. Yeah, and that's that was exactly the questions that I posed to both uh, Rideau Hall and, and Global Affairs Canada. Uh, Rideau Hall uh, wouldn't answer my questions. They directed me to, to Global Affairs because they're the ones who, you know, quite fairly are the ones that are in charge of organizing overseas trips that the Governor General takes part on. But uh, yeah, as of... Uh, as of uh, 4.38 Ottawa time, uh, yeah, they've not uh, re- replied to any of my emails. Uh, you mentioned this in your uh, piece on this as well in the National Post, that th- this is not a one-off either, that this is the third time that Mary Simon has traveled abroad. And not to suggest that the Governor General shouldn't travel abroad. I'm sure that is part of the job. But this was one of, of what are now three very expensive trips. Yeah, and you're absolutely right. You know, part of the Governor General's job is to be Canada's representative overseas, to represent the crown in Canada and Canada's monarch overseas and to be a goodwill ambassador and to take part in all those diplomatic stuff that comes with the job but yeah a lot of uh you know people are questioning you know what like uh i I wrote about uh, last year a story that i broke that uh um the uh the Governor General on March 2022, about you know a few months before the the Iceland trip, she went to uh, visit uh, Expo 2020 in Dubai. It was delayed a couple of years because of the pandemic, and the whole trip was 1.3 million dollars, which is you know a lot, but you know it's a it's a long trip with a lot of uh, logistics and things like that. But yeah, the, the kind of what really popped out to me was the fact that uh, her and her guests on the government airplane had racked up a 100 thousand dollar in-flight catering bill, um, and some of the uh, that story prompted a lot of changes. Uh, the Department of National Defense uh, cut a lot of the frills out of their VIP flights. For example, they don't offer choices of meals anymore, and they got rid of things like, you know, like, like garnishes, garnishes for your drinks and flower arrangements and things like that. But uh, yeah, yeah, it's it is possible to do a job like the Governor General's without uh, you know spending set as, as much as a new car just for limo rentals like they could have they could have purchased a brand new car in Reykjavik driven it around left it <laughs> keys in the ignition at the airport when they left and it probably would have been cheaper yeah would have been cheaper than the $71,000 exactly. for uh, the limo services uh, you mentioned drink garnishes and that might seem odd to people as well but that was also something on that trip wasn't it am i wrong in in saying there were, it was thousands of mm-hmm. dollars wasn't it to spent on limes for drink garnishes oh, like the, the 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 receipts from that trip were just <laughs> it blew my mind like like for example like they uh, the receipts to show that they spent uh, over $1000 on just on boxed water um $100 for 4 liters of apple juice and $500 for a certain quantity quantity of lemons and limes for some reason the uh, global affairs decided to redact exactly how how many lemon and limes at $500 purchased but uh anybody who's been shopping recently probably saying it's maybe two or three but you know <laughs> it's uh it's just with inflation and everything else but yeah it's it, it was it was like it, some of the some of the stuff was just absolutely like incredible like the uh 
like like in-flight meals were things like beef Wellington, um, you know, far beyond what you'd get at Air Canada business class or even Emirates first class. You know, it's 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 just absolutely crazy. And even after that trip, and like you said, you got those documents. You wrote about that trip. That was the the week long trip in March of 2022. Even after mm-hmm. that, and the embarrassment, I hope that perhaps the governor general felt, or at least maybe taking a second look and understanding why the optics of that are not good. Even after that happened, there was still this trip to Iceland and still all of these expenses. And even before that, I wrote about her very first trip overseas as governor general, which uh, was uh, a $700,000 trip to attend the Frankfurt Book Fair. That was uh, in October 2021. And that trip included a $103,000 in-flight catering meal. So, yeah, it's there's there's definitely something weird going on. And, uh, you know, that means that, uh, you know, the passengers of the governor general, you know, are eating beef, uh, you know, uh, Salisbury steak like the rest of us. And, you know, so be it. $103,000 for a trip from, I, I'm assuming the trip was from Ottawa to Germany? Yeah, yeah. That just seems, I, I mean, even with Beef Wellington and the, and the best, as you said, the best lemons and limes money can buy, it still even seems almost, how would you even rack up that bill? <laughs> yeah, I, I'd certainly like to try. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, do you think this will will lead to any change then? Because here we have it. This is the third example that we know of with this governor general. We've seen governor generals in the past also seem to be very, very comfortable spending taxpayer dollars and not thinking about uh, thinking about it at all, really. Uh, at what point or, or do you get any sense that this might change? Well, you see, the problem that we have, Canada is kind of conflicted right now with the crown, um, you know, since the, the death of, uh, you know, of Her Majesty. It's been, you know, Canada has been really rethinking its its relationship with with the monarchy and, and people's uh, opinions of uh, of the king or whatever they are. But, yeah, this sort of thing does really does nothing to improve you know, relations between everyday Canadians and the Crown because they see the Governor General as as Canada's viceroy, as as Canada's representative of the Crown in Canada, you know, spending, you know, more than what a lot of people in Canada make a year on, you know, on 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 in flight catering and and uh and, and limos rides like my colleague uh, John Iveson, the, uh, the bureau chief of, uh, of our parliamentary bureau in Ottawa, like he wrote a great column today on sort of how, you know, that's it, we, when you're surrounded in this in government, you know, dropping $71,000 for limo rental doesn't really seem all that all that wrong. So it's really easy if you're stuck in this sort of thing to get jaded with it. But really, when it comes right down to it, you know, like, you know, my grocery bills to feed my kids and my wife for, you know, you know, three, four hundred bucks now. And when it used to be half that. So, you know, it, really when it comes to the affordability and everything else, I think it's just it's just poor, poor optics. Oh, exactly. And the fact that at no point did it cross anyone's mind, it seems that, like you said, we're dealing with a time when there are a lot of Canadians who are making very tough choices, who cannot afford groceries. And at no point did anyone in this entourage or anybody involved with this trip think, hey, wait a minute, these optics might not look great. Where can we maybe cut and not spend this much money? Yeah, and that's what I'm hoping that uh, you know these conversations take place behind the scenes. That uh, you know, I know they certainly did after after my stories about uh, the Governor General's Dubai trip. You know, and like no one, no no one, no one's saying that that she's not entitled to do her work. She's not entitled to represent Canada overseas, and part of that is is taking part in trips and and sort of you know fulfilling the role of being Canada's vice regal. But at the same time, you know, you, you know, where do you draw the line? 
Brian Passifum, thank you so much both for writing this, for getting these details, and thanks for joining us today to talk more about it. Appreciate it. Oh, it was a pleasure. Anytime. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop? Tune in to the Jill Bennett Show live from noon till 3 on 980 CKNW. Have a question or comment? Send me an email, jill at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.